Good morning. Welcome to Big Valley Grace Community Church. For those who are online and in the menu, uh, venue, as well as the Cafe Astoria, special welcome to you. Glad that you're here. Our ministry reaches all across America. People from Pennsylvania and Ohio have been watching today, and it's been great to grateful for the ministries of Big Valley Grace. Thank you for your generosity that makes these things possible. What we do here touches many people's lives, and I hope today is that you'll be particularly encouraged and you'll be affirmed in the Lord, and, and uh, just it's good to be reminded that in spite of whatever circumstances that we're facing, that God has a, a deep and wonderful love for us. If you're visiting us today from Big, uh, Big Valley, this is your first time here, special welcome to you. Right after the service, uh, there'll be a group of us up here at front, pastors and elders. We want to provide opportunity to pray. We'd love to meet those of you who are brand new. Feel free to come up and shake our hands and introduce yourself to us. If you've been carrying any burdens, there'll be opportunity to pray here today after the service. And we count it a privilege to pray, and we'll explain a little bit more about that. Also, if you're new, um, our practice is to go through the book of the Bible. And uh, we started a series, Pastor Rick uh, started the series on, jo- on Job just a few weeks ago, and we're going to be in chapter 4 today. And uh, our practice is to go through a book of the Bible. Uh, Job has 42 chapters, and praise the Lord, we will not be in this for 42 weeks. <laughs> it's a great book. I love this book. It is, um, boy, Lord, has just been using it in my own life, and, and uh, I, I, I hope you sense that even today, that he's also using it in your life. Uh, in your life as well. But we're going to be spending about 10 weeks in this book. Encourage you to track along with us as best that you can. Uh, hopefully you're in a life group. We have over 90 some life groups that are meeting. There's a few that still could take uh, some, some room. <clears throat> but be in the book. Read it. Study it. Pray about it. Let me give you some tips about how to read the book of Job. Because some of you, how many are finding the book of Job challenging? You're, you're re- reading it all right, all right. Well, there's the reasons for it, and let me just uh, kind of take you through just a few things here that will, might be will help you in your own personal your own personal study. One, it's 42 chapters long, and there's a reason why it is that long. When you look at all the the names that are mentioned in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there is no other character in the Bible that gets so much attention. Any at any time, the Lord could have written a lengthy story about Joseph, about Abraham, about King David. Here, 42 chapters of the season of life. And I think it's significant that it's not five chapters. He could have written in like the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters long. But no, he, he wanted us to go through this with Job. Because what Job experienced did not, uh, uh, he was in a long time. And this will help you in understanding. There is a gap between chapters one and chapters two. They did not happen, bam, bam. Uh, there is, uh, in chapter one, uh, some pretty bad stuff happens. One of them is he's losing 10 children. There's a space. Chapter two happens. And then he laments. And then he, we have the conversations with his friends. Part of, of Job and the suffering that Job went through is illustrated in the 42 chapters because the Lord wants us to grieve with Job. He wants us to feel the weight of his suffering. And for any who have suffered like Job, and there are some here today who would say, my life is just like Job's. Folks, it's not over, it's not over quickly, is it? In fact, in many instances, you carry this burden for a very long time and maybe all the way to the end of your life. 
And a part of the difficulty of Job is that we enter his difficulty together and recognize that there's not a quick answer or an easy answer or a magic answer that's going to lift the difficulty and challenges from Job as it is in our own life. So as you look through Job, just understand that. And also understand that his suffering was months long. We don't know exactly how long it was, but when his friends show up in the end of chapter two, Job is near death already. He has gone from a very prosperous man, from being well-respected in his community, and you catch this in chapter 29 and chapter 30, and it's good to have these verses in perspective as you read through the book of Job. But he not only has lost it all, but his health has so declined that his skin has been blackened by his disease. You can see the bones protruding through his skin. So here's a man who at one time was well fed. Because when you're rich in those days and you have thousands of animals, you eat well. <laughs> and Job probably ate well. He dressed well. And now he is wearing sackcloth. He is filthy. He originally had cut his hair. His hair probably looks like dreads because it's unwashed. He has not been able to eat. He has not been able to sleep. And he's wondering why in the world the Lord has allowed him to live so long. That's Job. And this thing has stretched on and on and on and on. And he's wondering, Lord, how much longer is this going to last? Lord, if you could just end it right now. At least if you could end it now, my joy and my delight will be in that I have not cursed you. It's an agonizing story. And then you have his friends who come in. And his friends, who, and we'll get into this in just a little bit as we go through the lesson here today. The friends are older. And from based upon their experiences, they're going to offer Job advice. And one of the things you'll notice as you read through the conversations is not a single one of them offers any comfort or consolation to Job. Not a single one of them says, Job, I am so sorry that you lost your kids. Oh, Job, I can't imagine the depth of your grief. Not a single one. In fact, they come with a sense of judgment. They come with a sense of righteousness. And every one of them absolutely believes that nobody could suffer like this if it wasn't for the mighty hand of God bringing discipline and punishment into Job's life. And there may be some of you here today that identify with this and wondering why your affliction is in your life. Was it something that you did? Is God punishing you? Are you under his judgment hand? Is it because you did something wrong? You led a, some wicked life and now God's retribution is upon you. That's exactly what all of his friends, including Elihu, were accusing him of doing. That's the book of Job. So that helps. And one of the things that helps me as I studied it, and I, I want to give you permission if you haven't done so, read the last chapter. Because <laughs> it, it really helps. A couple things that you'll see as you read the last chapter. One, in 42.7, God says all the things that your friends have been saying are wrong. So it's good as you read chapter four. We're, we're going to look at chapter four through chapter seven and eight today. I won't read all of the sections. We'll, we'll read just chapter four today. But we're going to deal with just the first round of the conversations. It's good to know that as Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and ultimately Elihu speak, as they endeavor to speak on behalf of God, they speak wrongly. Not that there isn't some truth in what they say. There are some good theological and biblical principles about the nature and character of God, but they get it wrong. 
They think that, that Job is suffering because of his sin and that is absolutely furthest from the truth. This man, while not perfect, is blameless before God. He is not an enemy of God. He is a friend of God. God dearly loves him. God is not punishing Job. He is not trying to teach Job a lesson or two. Now, not that he won't learn something through it, but that is not God's purposes. He has a bigger purpose than that. So it's good to know as you read through these, I had some Adventist friends come to me and use passages of Job to try to convince me that when we die, our life is over, but except only in the mind of God. They talk about soul sleep. There's no way that you can make those kind of, those theological uh, principles and foundations based upon the book of Job. That's not what that book is for. We need to understand it in the context. And so here's a, a tip on how to read Job. Uh, read the conversations. Read Eliphaz's comments, which is two chapters and three and four, uh, four and five, and then Job's response and just stop. Just look at it. Read it a few, a few times. And then read Bildad's response. And then just stop with Job's, with Job's response. Just do that. There's three rounds of those conversations. And then Elihu, who's the youngest of them all, and I've been saying he's the gardener. He's the guy that's out there raking the leaves and mowing the lawns, listening to these conversations. He finally puts his rake down and he speaks, saying, I'm the youngest, but I think I have something to say to this thing. And so it helps to read those things in the conversations. If you read just a few verses of Job at a time, you're going to miss it. It's going to be confusing to you. It's going to be difficult for you to read, uh, but it'll make a whole lot more sense when you read it in its context. Now, one of the things, and it may happen to you as you study uh, the book of Job, the Lord's going to bring a lot of things into your mind. And this passage is just overwhelmed me with, the older I get, the more sins I see in my own life, the more failings I see, and the more I experience God's, God's grace. And there's just too many times that I was an Eliphaz in, in somebody's, somebody's life. And I hope you're better than that. I hope that you have, have greater understanding. It's just taken me way too long to learn some of these lessons. And when I was a younger man, I was pretty zealous and sure in my relationship with the Lord and talking about Jesus and so concerned that people would get saved and not that I was a great evangelist but I wasn't timid and tried to find opportunities to share Christ and we had one man in our employ he was a few years younger he could have been my brother about my brother's age and we had a great relationship together and I shared Christ and for many times that he would just let me know he wasn't ready that when he got older he'd be ready it's kind of a rodeo kind of guy and he uh, but one night about 10 o'clock one night this had been around 1982 uh, I got a call, and he was uh, in great grief. His wife just died giving, child, giving birth to his little girl. She had a C-section. They nicked an artery, and uh, she bled out. They couldn't help her. And he was just absolutely devastated. You can imagine the incredible grief that he was in. And... Uh, And so I shared with him, when will you get your life right with the Lord? Talked about how important it was to have a relationship with Christ. We talked briefly, hung up the phone, I went back to sleep. And I regret that. You don't know how badly I regret that. 
Because what David needed was somebody to sit in the dirt with him. Not to preach to him. Not to quote Bible verses to him. He needed somebody to sit in the dirt with him. Which I never did. Folks, don't be a Lonnie Skiles. Uh, folks, in those moments is not the time to preach. It's not the time to judge. It's not the time to be righteous. Not the time to be arrogant. It's time to sit in the dirt. If anything, the guys, his friends, Job's friends did right. They sat in the dirt with him for seven days and they kept silent. It was only when Job poured out his heart that they felt like they had to give a response to it. They had to put an answer to his questions. Don't feel so compelled. Folks, there are times where people just need to get it out. And they are broken. They are hurting. It may not make any sense. It may not make any reasons. But they just need to get this poison out of their system. We just need to listen. We need to love them. We need to care for them. That's what Jesus would do. And folks, may that story be a lesson to you and a help to you. As I've gone through this study, there's a song that comes to my mind, and there, I, I so love the hymns, and again, as I've gotten older, I enjoy the hymns more, and I love them for the depth of their lyrics, but also I love them because of the story that's behind some of the songs. Many of you know a little bit of the story of Horatio Spafford, who wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. We're going to look at the first verse in just a moment, but I want to give you as much of the story as I can in the few minutes. Horatio Spafford, for those of you who may not know, was a very well-to-do, very wealthy man who lived in Chicago around the days of the Civil War. He was married in 1861 to a gal named Anna. She was Norwegian, and they had five children in the first 10 years of their marriage. Life was very good to Horatio. He was well-known in the community in Chicago. Uh, He had a very successful law firm of which he was a partner of. Uh, He took his investments and the wealth that he had accrued. And in 1871, he invested in the North Shore of Chicago, buying real estate property for his investments. Shortly after he did that, in the spring of 1871, his son, his only son, passed away to either pneumonia or scarlet fever. There's different variations of this story. Whatever it was, took his life and they buried his only son. It was within a short time after that that fire swept through Chicago, destroyed most of Chicago, including all of his properties and his law offices. He wasn't penniless, but he was significantly set back in a terrible way. All that he had planned for, all that he had set aside, he was a Christian man. He was well known in his church. He was an elder in his church. He knew the word of God. He was a teacher of the word. He was a close friend of D.L. Moody. And uh, yet, in spite of all those things, all of his stuff, all his earthly treasures were gone in just a moment of time. In 1873, just a short time after the fire of Chicago, there was an economic collapse in which he experienced further losses in his investments. And it was out of that emotional turmoil that he put his wife on a boat. They were going to go together in Europe and just get away. And some of you have had those experiences. You just got to get out. Got to get out of town. Got to get away from the familiar things. And as he would go through Chicago, Chicago wasn't rebuilt. So you can understand, you just got to get away. But because of some business issues, he wasn't able to go with them. They made some last-minute changes. He put his family in the front of part of the boat. 
And off his wife and his four daughters sailed. And within a, and for seven days, they had a wonderful cruise. And at two o'clock in the morning, the boat that they were on was struck by another ship in the night. You can imagine how dark the sea is. And this boat collides, hits it in the middle of the ship, which is where they originally were to be. But Anna and her four children are flung into the water. She scrambles to try to find her little girl. She remembers, the last thing she remembers is trying to reach out and touching her little girl's uh, nighttime garment at two in the morning, but unable to grab it. And having lost both all of her children, four children, she clings to some floatsome and is later picked up and two weeks later lands in France where she writes back to her husband, I alone survived. There were 266 people that met their death that night. She was one of the few survivors. She was found unconscious, she was rescued, and she was wondering, what do I do next? He boards the boat. Another boat leaves as soon as he can, which you don't do things very fast back in the 1800s. And as he's awakened around two in the morning, and the captain says, this is where we were at. This is where, the, this is where your little girls passed away. And he writes the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. I want you to look at the first verse of what he writes. He says, when peace like a river attendeth my way. And for a long season in his life, peace was like a river to him. It attendeth his way. Everything that he touched was wonderfully blessed. He had a wonderful family for 10 years of his life. He was prosperous. He was at the top of the pile. But then when sorrow came upon him, like sea billows roll. And you can imagine the depth of his sorrows as he looked out over the night sea as he pens these words. But here's what I want you to focus on. Look what it says next. Whatever is my lot in life, whatever God has assigned for me in my life, whatever cross the Lord has asked me to bear, he has taught me to say, what does it say? It is well with my soul. When I've looked at that hymn and as I've studied his life, what is it that God had been building in Horatio's life that he could look out over the rail and see where his daughters had perished, knowing that his wife was alone waiting for him, that he could pen such words to say that whatever, Lord, my lot in life is, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Don't misread this. He is not overwhelming with giddiness and joy. But there is a deep, settled peace, and even in his grief, that his soul, it was well with his soul. In this room have been some incredible assignments that the Lord has given to us as a church family. In the rows of people that you see here, all dressed so nicely and colorfully, are some tremendous stories. And it runs the gamut. I don't think in this room here today, not that I know everybody's story, but in the stories that I've heard, whatever you read in the newspapers here, there's sexual abuse here in this auditorium today. There are some who've gone through the issues of abortion. There are some who are plagued with Various diseases, Parkinson's, MS, you name it. 
It's here. There's chronic depression, chronic pain. It's all here in this room, but you would not know it to look at people here. You'll see folks around here that have these little walkier things. My dad had one. They did not always have that. There was a time where they walked without assistance. They could climb stairs. They could do all sorts of things, but not today. There are those who have canes. They didn't used to have canes, but now that has been assigned to them. There are many things that are here in this room. People have been given something to bear. We all have been given something to bear. And may the Lord teach us to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's my hope and prayer today as we go through the book of Job chapter four, that you're not depressed, but you're encouraged. There are things that we know that Job does not know. And I wanna remind you of some of those promises and truths that he did not have that you have today. I hope that as we leave here today, that you're strengthened, that you're encouraged in the Lord because he is our hope. He is our strength. He is our salvation. And if you do not have a relationship with the Lord, if this is strange to you, man, we'd love to introduce you to a Savior who will never leave you, who will never desert you, who has a plan for your life, and even in the midst of a storm has not stopped loving you. Let's take our Bibles and look at Job chapter 4, and then we're going to pray and there's an outline that's provided for you in your program. I want you to go through it and fill in some of the blanks. But do look up the scriptures. There are some wonderful things that are here that ought to be underlined and highlighted in your Bible that you might study it, memorize it, and may it be a great encouragement to you. So in Job chapter 4, right after Job's lament, where he pours out his heart, his broken heart, and essentially says, I so wish I had never been born. Eliphaz speaks. He's the oldest. In fact, there's some reference uh, later on. I think it's in Job chapter 15 where he implies that maybe he might even be older than Job's father, which would put him probably at 100 years old or maybe even older. The folks live longer in these days. So here's Eliphaz. He's from, uh, he's a Temanite, which means that he's from Jordan area around Petra. Uh, he is uh, Edomite from the tribe of Esau. And he is, um, uh, he's well known. Uh, Job, he knows Job well, and he is responding to Job's uh, comments. So let's uh, look at the word, follow along with me. And you'll, you'll notice as we go through this that the first few verses are complimentary, and then he starts cranking it up. And as you read through the three conversations that Eliphaz has, he gets more intense, more intense, because Job is just not responding to his words. So here he begins. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied, if someone ventures a word with you, Job, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? And now he says, Job, think how many you have instructed. How you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now troubles come to you, and you're discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways, your hope. In one way, he's mocking Job. Job, you used to be the, the number one counselor. You would go alongside of people and your words would encourage them. Where, why are you not encouraged now? Why don't you remember back some of the things you said and apply them to your own life. Teach yourself is what he's saying. And now he ramps it up a little bit more. He's absolutely convinced, Eliphaz is, that nobody suffers like Job without God bringing punishment into a person's life. 
So verse 7 says, Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, Eliphaz says now, as I've observed over my hundred years or so of life, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And at the breath of God, they are destroyed. And at the blast of his anger, they perish. Lions may roar and growl. And yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey. And the cubs of the lioness are scattered. And he's later going to say, Job, trouble does not come for no reason at all. And he's trying to convince Job that somewhere, Job, you have, you have not become wealthy on your own. You have become wealthy because you have stepped on people. You've taken advantage of the oppressed and the poor. You've stolen from them. That's why you've been wealthy and God's now making it right. He's absolutely convinced of that as his other friends are too. So now verse 12, he gets spiritual. In fact, as you look at Eliphaz, um, Zophar, and Bildad, these are spiritual men. They have an understanding of God. They are a worshiper of God in a similar way that Job is. These are not idol worshipers. And it's a good testament to know that even though we walk with God, as I earlier illustrated my own life, we don't always get it right. We don't always know the mind of God. And we need to be careful how we speak to people and how we encourage people with his word. But Eliphaz has a supernatural experience which he attributes to God and he attributes it wrongly. And you'll see why here in a minute. Look at verse 12. So a word has secretly brought, was brought to me, Job. My ears caught a whisper of it amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on men. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. And the hair on my body stood on end, as it would yours or mine. It stopped. So imagine, it's night. There's no light on, no candles being lit. And yet there is this, this darkened form. This, he knows someone else is in the room with him. He can't see it, but he knows it's there. And it's dark and it's black. He thinks it's an angel. It stops. But I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a hushed voice. And here's what the voice says. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? The answer is no. Can a man be more pure than his maker? The answer is no. If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, which he did a few of them, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed, which is referring to his children, more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dust, they are broken to pieces unnoticed. They perished forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? I'm going to jump into chapter 5 for, for just a moment. He says, I myself have seen a fool taking root, and suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court. Without a defender, the hungry consume his harvest, taking it even from among thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. <laughs> you get what he's talking about? He's, he's saying, Job, you're this person. You're this person who's being crushed. In fact, if you look at chapter 8, verse 3, Bildad jumps in and he says, When your children sin against him, God gave them over to the penalty of their sin. So you have another friend that jumps in and saying, the reason why your kids died is because of their sin. There's no comfort at all in any of these verses. In fact, Job's later going to say, you guys are like a, 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 an empty caravan. You were wise until you talked. 
And we should be quiet, is what he says. And there's some great things as we were, if we were to go through verse by verse, but we're going to stop right there. Let me pray. So, Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for what it begins to do in our life and how we connect into Job's life. I'm so grateful that we have his story here today. It ultimately brings encouragement because there are so many things that we have available to us that we know today that Job did not know. He really thought you had abandoned him. He really thought that he was your enemy. He really thought that his plan in his life was done. None of those things were true. And they're not true for us either here today. So I pray, Lord, you'd use your word here today to bring hope, refreshment, encouragement, because, Lord, there are many here today that are heavily burdened. And, Father, would you give them your peace today, your comfort today, as they put their hope and trust in you. So we thank you and bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me just give you a brief outline of the book of Job. We're going to get right into here fairly soon uh, what Job didn't know, but I, I want to make sure we are all together on the same page. So if, you, if we look at an outline of Job, chapters 1 and chapter 2, they set the stage for what is about to happen. So understanding chapter 1 and chapter 2 is very significant, and Rick has, recovered, has covered those passages very, very well. So understand that Job's suffering is not because of his sin. Understand that there's another reason that God has that Job will never know, that we don't fully know, but one of the reasons is for us. I'm glad we have this story here. Uh, I'm sorry that he had to suffer, but I'm glad that it's here. If we took the book of Job out of the scriptures, there would be a lot that we wouldn't know, but we can speak confidently of today because it is there. So chapters one, chapter two set the stage. Chapter three is Job's lament. It stands by itself. This is, in fact, what I like about Job is that it's so honest. It is so transparent. Here's a man who has walked with God, who is cursed in the day that he is born. And there, you may have felt that at some time and recognize that, that and, and some will even say as a Christian, you shouldn't feel that way. Folks, we are, we are weak people and our hearts break and there are seasons where we have the darkness of soul and we will feel just like Job did and we will say, if this is what my life is like, better that I should ever have been born. I like Job 3. I like it because it is just straight up honest. And it's very, very real. Chapters four through chapter, I think it's 37, is, are the conversations that he has with, with three and four friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They travel a distance. They come to him near the end of his life because he's, they've heard that he's been suffering. It takes them a while for them to get there. And they sit in the dirt with him for seven days. And now what they're responding to is his lament. It is very, very helpful to know that as they speak to Job, they are speaking about God wrongly. There's a lot of truth in what they say, but it's not applicable to Job, which is what they're doing. Does a man reap what he sows? Yes, it does. But this is not what this story is about. So there are some very good, solid biblical principles, theological principles. They are spot on, but it's not applicable to Job. That's where they got it wrong. They also agreed that Job was an enemy of God. They also agreed that Job was under God's punishment, and they were so wrong. It's good to look at Job 42.7 as you read these conversations and recognize that God is up there. And he's saying, that's not right. That's not what this is about. You got it wrong. 
And then, then God speaks in chapter 38 through 41. God speaks. And it's interesting that when God speaks, that God does not answer Job's question. <laughs> why me? <laughs> you know, I understand that you're a great God, but, but, but why am I this way? Because there's nothing in his life. As he looked at that, he said, what did I do that deserves this? He can't figure it out. And so God responds to him. And essentially, he begins asking him a series of questions that are saying, okay, Job, would you not, just listen for a minute, Job. Were you around when I made the heavens and the earth? Are you going to instruct me how to be God? You think you know more than I know? And he says, and, and Job, <laughs> you ever think about an ostrich? <laughs> and how dumb they are? <laughs> and yet they cannot run a horse? And they got some weird feathers. And Job says, no, I haven't thought anything about an ostrich. <laughs> oh, I'm sick. I'm not thinking about it. But he asks all of these questions. And he shows up in a whirlwind. And, Job, and then Job 42 is Job's deliverance. Where Job, all of a sudden, as he hears God and meets with him, all of a sudden, his soul is deeply satisfied. His soul is at rest and at peace. And then God turns it all around in verse 12. And who would have ever thought that Job's days would be lengthened and his bucket would be full? That's the outline of the book of Job. And so as you look at Job's grief, just to review, one day, in one day, he loses his wealth and he loses his children. He gets the phone call that nobody wants. He says, the thing that I feared and the thing that I dreaded has happened to me. And folks, we're all a phone call away from hearing something on the phone that we wish we would never have heard. And that was Job. Didn't get a phone call, but one messenger right after another. As soon as one was done, another one came, and another one came, four messengers, and the last one is saying, Job, your kids are gone. A mighty wind came, blew the house down, crushed everybody. They're all gone. There's a space between chapter one and chapter two. Satan comes back. Job, uh, Satan and God have a little conversation. Satan essentially says, it's obvious that the only thing he cares about is his, his own skin. Obviously, didn't, he loved his, didn't love his stuff, didn't love his kids, but you touch him and he'll curse you. And God says, I know, Job, that's not the case, but you can touch him, you just can't kill him. And he experienced sores from the top of his head down to the bottoms of his feet. Folks, in one day, his life changed just like that. One day he goes to bed healthy and well. The next day he wakes up and he has boils from the top of his to the bottom of his feet. I had someone in my life group this last week shared, hey, I had a boil, a boil. It was on his back. Most painful thing he's ever had in his life. And it's poisonous in terms of what goes does into your bloodstream. That was one. He's covered top of his head to the bottom of his feet, maybe even inside his mouth to a place where he can't eat, he can't sleep. There is no place that he can sit where he is comfortable. When he does attempt to sleep, he has terror mirrors that wakes him up. Imagine the chronic pain that keeps him from resting even and eating even, and he is in a bad, bad situ situation. He loses everything, his wealth, his children, and his health, and then his friends come. They are older than he, they spend seven days of silence, 
And as I shared with you, there is no compassion at all in anything that they, that they, that they say. But most significant, I think, with, with his friends is that they operate based upon what their experiences have been as well as a vision that they have attributed to being from God. Now, here's something that's interesting. Whenever an angel shows up, and you, will be, you won't be any different than this, if God in his grace would have Michael the archangel show up here, you would be scared to death. You would be overwhelmed with fear. You would be heading out the doors. You would be so frightened. When the Roman soldiers saw the angels come, they split. They had seen everything, but they had never seen that. And so whenever an angel shows up, when he showed up to Joseph, and he says, hey, Joseph, what did Joseph do? What was the first thing that angel said? Fear not. When he shows up to Mary, what's the first? Mary, don't be afraid. When he shows up to Gideon, Gideon, don't be afraid. <laughs> the spirit doesn't say this. He is scared to death. He knows something is in his room. It has, it has a form, but he can't tell what it is because it's all black. The hairs on the back of his head are standing up. His bones are trembling. And what does the angel say or the spirit say? Doesn't tell not to be afraid. Begins asking questions like Satan does. Is it true that God said this? Is it true, Eve, that's what God said? He loves asking questions that inflict doubt into your mind. Is it true that God really cares for you? Is it really true that God's a loving God for you? Is this what a loving God does to you? Really? How many times have you prayed about this? Haven't you prayed about this for a long time? Didn't you go forward and have somebody put some oil on you? Really, how long ago was that? He loves asking those kinds of questions that feed doubt, feed fear, that take your heart away and brings discouragement. He loves doing those kind of things. This is not from God. And we need to be very, very careful whenever we ever go to someone and saying, God spoke to me last night and he wants me to give you this message. We need to be very, very careful that we dare not say something that is not from the Lord. And Eliphaz somehow is impressed with the supernatural nature of this thing and thinks that it's from God, and he's wrong. So here's where I wanted to get. <laughs> what does Job not know? What does Job not know? I was just listening to the songs. Job would love to have been able to sing these songs, but he didn't know enough to even be able to sing them. But here's one of the things he didn't know. What he didn't know is that God had a great plan that he was working out. You see that in chapter 42. God was not done with Job. In the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his pain, God wasn't done. You think chapter 42 is a new idea for God? When you're looking at chapter four and chapter five and Job is all his suffering and his skin is black and he's scraping these worms off of his arms because the maggots were laying uh, eggs in these sores, you think God is, hey, what, what am I gonna do next? He knew 42 was coming. <laughs> he was keeping Job alive because he wanted to do a chapter 42 in his life. God had a plan for Job. He just couldn't see it. And sometimes in the midst of your pain and your suffering, you think that God has forgotten you, that God has abandoned you, and you wonder if God even has a plan for you. But I'm saying to you, he does. And that plan is always, always, always much bigger than you. 
It's bigger than Job. This story, while Job is the, one, is the central character in here and God is the central character here, it's not about Job. It's what, what God wants to do in and through Job to his friends and to us here today. And your life is no different than that. God does have a plan for each one of us and it is bigger than you. It's not about you. It's not about your job. It's not about your house. It's not about your family. It's what God wants to do in and through you. He wants each of our lives to bear fruit in ways greater than you and I can ever imagine. We ought not ever, ever underestimate what a handshake might bring to somebody, what a smile might bring to somebody, what going over to somebody's house and just bringing a meal might mean to somebody, what a card might do to somebody. Never underestimate the small things that you think are small, what God, how God might use it in a greater way. I am constantly t- taken back by people that come years, that I, that I met years ago and said, Lonnie, when you said this, it made such a difference in my life. I think, I don't even remember that. And I'm not putting any praise on myself, but you've had those experiences too. You've had those encounters where somebody comes to you and you've totally forgotten. You have no remembrance of it. And you said, really? Really? So understand that God's plan is much bigger than you. And from Joe's perspective, he thought that his life ended at the grave. In fact, if, if we were to go on a little bit further, Job says, you know, with a tree, you can cut a tree down and it sprouts right back up and has life again. If you ever go to Israel and you go to the, the Garden of Gethsemane, all of those olive trees that are there have a root system that's over a thousand, well, it's, it's over 2,000 years old, but the tops aren't because they were all cut down in AD 70 and turned into crosses that crucified all of the Jewish leadership at that time, but the trees grew back. And Job is looking at that and says, at least, you know, with a tree, it doesn't die. You cut it down and it keeps growing, but when a man dies, it's done. That's the end of it. And he is so wrong. Our life is not over at the grave. It is a transition point for us. The end of our story does not end when we're lowered into the dirt. It continues to live on, not only in people's lives, but folks, we do too. We continue to live on. And Job did not understand that. He did not know that. He thought it was done. He did not really know what was gonna happen after he died. Folks, we, we have a great understanding of what that is a great hope in the promises that the Lord has given to us. And here, I like this last part of it. What does Job not know? That God was preparing for Job an eternal weight of glory that he had no clue about. So Job lives to probably be a little over 200 years old. He finally dies. He is able to see four generations of his children and grandchildren living on. And so what do you think it was like when he gets into heaven? What kind of reception do you think he received? You think heaven noticed when he entered the throne room of God, the gates of heaven? You think heaven noticed? You bet he noticed. You think there was a celebration? You bet there was a celebration. Do you think God said to him, Job, I am so glad. Job, let me show you what this is all about. Let me, Job, I got, I've been preparing a place for you. I got stuff I want to show you. I want to reward you. I want to honor you. You think Job said, after he saw what God had, that's it? Really? I went through that for that? For a golden watch? That's all I get is a golden watch? (laughs) Folks, you and I will not be indebted to God. He will not be, we will not stand there broke and saying, really, that's what it was all about? 
He has something in store for us that Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think it's, or 1 Corinthians 2, I think it's in verse 9, it says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor mind has imagined what God has in store for those who love him. And so I think when I ever read that, and I say it again, I think of George Lucas, who has an incredible imagination, <laughs> and Steven Spielberg. And as incredible as their imagination has been, it falls so far short of what God has in store for you and I because he's bigger than we might ever imagine. His grace is greater than we might ever know. And folks, what he has in store for us, no one can ever begin to describe. And I love the song that says, when we see him, when we see him face to face, every tear he'll erase. And all life's trials will seem so small when we see him. That is true. You can take that to the bank. Isn't that something, that he would do that? Job had no clue to that. To me, that gives me hope. That gives me anticipation. In fact, when I, when I take time and I look backwards, as this book has caused me to look backwards at some of the things I messed up on, I don't like that. And if I park on it, I start digging a pretty deep hole that's hard to get out of. And so when I look at today and I look at the past, that takes me right into the, depression, but when I can look forward and I can look ahead, man, I can get through just about anything as to what the things that are coming up. Isn't that true with you too? And so I want to give you some verses, what I call verses of assurance, and write some of these down, underline them in your passages, and uh, I just want to go through these with you. One of, one of them is, I like this passage in Isaiah 27, is that God knows what's going on in my life. And I like how this starts, how God speaks to Isaiah, ask him to write this down. And here's what God says right out of the gate. Why do you say that I don't know and I don't care? You ever ask that about God? Why do you say, don't you know that I'm the everlasting God? Don't you know that I never sleep, I never go on vacations, and my voicemail is never full? <laughs> I see all of your ways. And the ones who wait upon me, guess what? They're going to find new strength. They're going to run and not grow weary, and they're going to walk and not faint. In fact, they'll be like an eagle that just mounts up and soars above all the stuff. Why do you say that I don't know? I don't care. Second thing is his intention. I love this passage in Galatians 50, 20. Joseph meets with his brothers who did him big time wrong. And Joseph, by God's grace, turns to his brothers and says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Folks, you can say that about anything that you're facing, what the enemy intends for evil in your life. And, and the enemy intended a lot of evil in Job's life. God's intent was for good. That's true for you, it's true for Joseph, it's true for me. Whatever is there, that there is to bring affliction and pain and discouragement, God has a different plan. It's keyed into the next one. And that these things in our life are for his display, that the work of God might be displayed in our life. I like this passage in John chapter nine, verses one through three, where the disciples come to Jesus and they said, Jesus, why is this man born blind? Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? He said, no, none of those things. It's so that the work of God might be displayed in this man's life. So why do you have this disease today and I park on Parkinson's because I have so many I have three dear friends who have it 
so the work of God might be displayed in their life, the power of God might be displayed in their life. What about some of the past afflictions? So the power of God might be displayed in your life. He wants them to show him strong in your depression, in your chronic pain, in the abuses that you have. He is rescued and by his grace, he's brought you to a place of knowing him so that the power of God might be displayed in his life. Yesterday, I received this from someone I dearly love. She has stage four metastatic breast cancer. She undergoes treatments every single week. It's changed her life. She writes this, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 17, 22, that a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. I have experienced, she writes this so strongly in my cancer journey, having a joyful heart truly is part of the healing process. A cancer diagnosis is crushing, it's in all caps. It is soul crushing, all caps. I've described what I felt when I received my diagnosis, and both times I received stage four diagnosis. She has been diagnosed stage four twice. One time um, after treatment, there was no evidence of any metastasis at all, no evidence of any cancer at all. Three months later, it shows back up with a vengeance. So she had another diagnosis. And the best way to describe it, it is soul crushing. Then to add insult to injury, cancer treatments are barbaric, chemo is poison, and not necessarily a selective poison. Those of you who've been through it understand this. Radiation burns you, surgery leaves you scarred and marred. Honestly, the realization of standard of care treatment and still not having any current care cure truly crushes one's spirit. However, in caps, instead of putting my trust in the oncology standards and claims, I choose to put my trust in God. I am constantly turning my heart to seek after his will, and he has blessed me greatly. No, he didn't, I like this, no, he didn't miraculously heal me when I begged him to. Some would say that's because she doesn't have enough faith. That's a cruel thing to say. I don't know why God chooses to heal some and not others. It's not because of lack of faith. And don't anyone put, ever put that burden on you. He has a plan that he's working out. He has consistently said, no, he didn't miraculously heal me when I begged him to. He has consistently shown me the next step. I don't know if I will ever achieve complete remission, if this will even be a manageable disease I live with for the rest of my life, or if he will take me in a car accident, which is okay. I have today, and I'm grateful for what, I'm grateful for it. I have this moment right now to share with you. I receive the honor of pouring into your life and encouraging you with my journey, and I'm so very humbled and filled with joy to be able to be used in such a way. It's one thing, get this, it's one thing to read the Bible, as I did for decades, but to put it into practice and live it out in the trenches of a terminal disease has been so very beautiful. Lord wants us, he wants us all to come to that place. That's why we can rejoice in every circumstance. And give thanks in every circumstance, knowing that God is bigger than our afflictions. And he is able to take these things and use it for his glory in ways greater than we can ever imagine. God has a wonderful provision for us. I love this passage in Isaiah 26.3. Here's God's provision for you. If you're in the trenches, if you're in the hole, 
my wife memorized this when she was, this, this passage comes from my wife who went through what my uh, daughter-in-law who I just described went through, is going through. It says, thou will keep him or her in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. That's God's promise to you and to me. He promises peace if we park our mind on him. It is a battle of the mind over the heart because the heart takes you away from that perfect peace. But he, our heavenly father, will keep you and I in perfect peace when our mind has stayed on him. And lastly, I want to assure you that there's an incredible reward that God is giving. This is not going to be wasted. This is not in vain. He is going to make this right. The tears will be wiped away. New joy will come. It may not be in this life, but this life will soon be over. Even Lazarus, after he was healed, died again. He got sick again. He went through all the things he went through the first time he went through the second time. I don't know that he was so happy when God raised him from the dead. Because he had to go through it again. But when we face and we receive what God has given us, this lot in life, and we receive it as a gift from him, though we may not understand it or fully appreciate it, Lord, you have given this to bear. Help me to bear it for you. Help me to walk in your way. Help me to trust in you. Because I know when you take this thing, you will be able to do something greater than I ever could do if I was healthy and well. You're able to take my pain and be an encouragement to somebody else's life. You're able to take my disease and you're able to be a blessing to my family as they watch me hang on to you. It will be their strength in the days and years to come. And it will be. We're gonna sing a song as we close here in just a moment. There's a song called He Giveth More Grace. And Scott is gonna sing it for us in just a moment. But here's the backstory. And again, what, what amazes me as I look at these words, and, I, and this is why I tell this story, so as you look at them, you'll see what I see in it. This song was not written out of comfort. Annie Johnson Flint was sorely afflicted with rheumatoid arthritis. She was orphaned as an early age. She witnessed her mother dying in childbirth. She became responsible to care for her youngest little sister, and as she went into the teaching profession, within a couple of years, she was completely incapacitated by rheumatoid arthritis. She lived the rest of her life until 1932. She lived about 60 years old. She was racked with chronic pain. She could never walk again, could hardly ever ride again. And yet the people who saw her testified to her deep and abiding joy. And she wrote this song, He Giveth More Grace. She says, this is not about my life, but this is, she did experience this. And it just amazes me that somebody who is so ill and so racked with pain could find such deep joy to write a song that will bless us all here today. God. Man, folks, these songs are great, aren't they? A lot of truth in these songs. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you giveth more grace when the burdens become greater. Grateful that your riches are infinite that we cannot exhaust your resources, though we quickly exhaust our own. When we are weak, you are most strong. You promise you'll never leave us. You'll never desert us.
that these things are momentary light afflictions that are producing in us a great way of glory, that we are jars of clay. We are likened to a mist that is here and tomorrow is gone. For whatever season you would give us, to whatever thing that you would have us to carry, may we carry it for you, for your purposes, for your glory. Would you help us to keep our eyes off of ourselves onto you so that we can walk hand in hand with you. We bless you. I pray, Lord, that today that you would strengthen those who are weak. You would encourage those, Lord, who are faltering. That you would receive all the honor and glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a great week. We'll be here to pray with any who would come.